Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNUD Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BV Energy Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Scott. Hi, Eric. It's great to be joining you, and I'm truly honored to introduce our guest today. Uh, today, we'll be speaking with Cass Sunstein. Uh, Cass is the Robert Walmsley Professor at Harvard Law School, where he founded and directs the program on behavioral economics and public policy. Uh, from 2019 to 2012, he was administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, where he pioneered the application of behavioral science to public policy in the United States. Um, Cass is also an advisor to the WHO, and he, in fact, he has just taken a leave of absence to join the Biden administration and more precisely uh, to work with the Department of Homeland Security. And of course, as many of you know, Cass is the author of hundreds of articles and close to 20 books. And today we'll be speaking with him about his latest book, which he co-authored with Nobel Prize winning um, author Daniel Kahneman and Professor Olivier Siboney, called, which is called Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. Welcome, Cass. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Cass, we are very honored to welcome you again. One year ago, you were kind enough to inaugurate our podcast, and it was an insightful conversation and a memorable experience for Scott and myself. We know you are more than busy, especially during this week. I think the launch of Noise is tomorrow. Uh, so a big thank you uh, to give us and our listeners some of your precious time again. Welcome, Cass. Thank you. It's a pleasure and actually a thrill to be here, uh, to be back, and also to be back on the occasion of the publication of a book. Thank you. Cass, before speaking about noise, I would like to ask you about yourself as an author. As Scott mentioned, you are more than a prolific author. If we consider the last 12 months, I think you have published Too Much Information in September last year, Law and Leviathan, September last year, Liars in March this year, Averting Catastrophe, April this year, Noise Now, and you have another book announced for September. So, Cass, as an author myself, could you tell me your secret? How is it possible? Well, uh, many of these projects are many years in the making. So Noise was, on my part, three years in the making for uh, my co-authors. They had been working on it for years before then. Each of the books you describe, in a way, it's like a child. I, I love each one, and I worked very hard with each one. Uh, the topic of averting catastrophe, which was very salient, of course, during the pandemic and continues to be, that's something I I've been working on for about 20 years, and I just got 
clear enough, at least in my head, to do a book on the topic. I have a book on falsehoods and free speech that's uh, obviously very relevant in an era of proliferating falsehoods relevant to all nations. And that's a topic I've been working on for about 25 years. And so what becomes a book often depends on how much of a stock of thinking I've done and whether I have on my computer back from, let's say, 2002, 50 pages, which I never published, uh, to the extent that this was a, a probably an excessively prolific year. It's, I, I have to say that COVID was part of it. Just there was no travel and I was home a lot. And if I had a lot of free time in a day, I would spend it. Uh, my friends were not available, really. <laughs> we were all in our homes. So I would spend it with my dogs and my computer. And you see the results. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Thanks. It's a pleasure for us to have so much insightful learnings to read from uh, you. Do you have a specific writing routine that you could share? Well, now that I'm in the government, I do almost no writing except, you know, to edit and revise things. Uh, when I was a, a civilian, I would typically write in the morning. So I, I get up early around seven o'clock and between the hours of 7 a.m. and noon, I would write a great deal. And if I was teaching or if I had meetings, of course, that would be a, a time for teaching or meetings. But if I even got an hour between meetings, I would write during that hour. And I would often think to myself that what I'm writing is bad. And I think I was right, it was bad, but that I would think you can't edit a blank page. And so if I had something that was bad, at least it could be possibly toward the start of something that would work. Also, I like to write things that are short. It might be a short law review article or a short, even uh, a column for a newspaper. And in a small percentage of those cases, but it, it, I find it helpful, uh, that idea would be a spark that would eventually become something larger. Uh, maybe even a book. I think it's possible my little book, Liars on Falsehoods and Free Speech, came from an 800-word, the, the direct inspiration was an 800-word newspaper column, I believe. And what advice could you give to someone who would like to write a book? I think to find something that you are excited about and have fun with. So uh, sometimes I've thought it would be very good if I could write a book about something. And I, I love the topic, but I know that topic wouldn't be good company for me, that it would be too abstract or a little sad. And I would think I can't spend time with that. So if there's something that really makes you curious or makes you laugh or makes you puzzled, that that's a good clue that it'll work for you. Something for which the experience of the doing will be a, a benefit, even if you never publish it. So Noise, I know my co-authors, Olivia and Danny, they worked on it for several years thinking they probably wouldn't ever publish anything, but they love thinking about it. Um, no, happy to. And, and I guess the easiest place to start uh, is, is just by defining noise and maybe in particular the distinction that you make between noise and um, bias or various forms of bias. And I, I know I've seen you've used the archery example, which I thought was a really interesting way to, to illustrate it and bring it to life. 
I'll give you two examples. And I'll say that all three of us are very excited about this topic because we feel like it's a continent that we visited that is underpopulated, meaning it's a big world which needs a lot of thinking. So think of archers and think of them as uh, three kinds. One, they're all getting the bullseye. They're really good at it. They're very precise. The second is they're all going to the left. They're all missing to the left. They're just a left biased set of archers. That's a bias. Now think of a third team of archers and they're all over the bullseye. Some are to the left, some are to the right, some are above, some are below. That's, that, those are noisy archers. Or you can think of it in terms of a scale where you weigh yourself in the morning. If your scale always shows you as a little heavier than you actually are, that's my scale. It's, 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 it's unkind to me. It always shows me a little heavier than I actually am. That's a bias scale. But if you have a scale that is uh, variable in the sense that on some days it'll show you as heavy as you are and some days as lighter than you are, that's a noisy scale. And what we find is that wherever there is judgment, there is noise and more than you think. And the pervasiveness of those noisy scales or those noisy archers is a serious problem for business, for government, even for individual life. Can you speak a little bit more in terms of why it is indeed a, a serious problem? And also, perhaps I've heard you describe it as an invisible and you mentioned kind of an underpopulated island, uh, continent a moment ago. Uh, so I think those two issues w are really interesting to explore, both the importance and, and why it may be something that people overlook. Let's talk a little bit, shall we, about domains in which we found noise. Medicine. You might have a hospital which is biased in the sense that they are always ordering tests, lots and lots of tests too many tests, it's very expensive, it's scary for the patients, that's a biased hospital. And obviously it's making a bunch of mistakes. Now imagine a hospital that's noisy, where half of the doctors order a lot of tests, too many tests, and half of the other doctors say, go home, come back in six months and order too few tests. On average, that hospital might be unbiased. The average judgment is, let's say, correct. But for the patients, it's a lottery and it's a damaging lottery because some of them are going to be underdiagnosed and are going to get sick and maybe die. And some of them are going to be subject to a battery of tests, which could have side effects and adverse consequences for health and could be very expensive. So in medicine, we find, to at least my amazement, there's a lot of noise among doctors. And it's a little bit of a secret among doctors. It's an unvisited country, uh, the country of noise in medicine. And it's not that visible because if you're an individual patient and your doctor says, we're going to do a lot of tests, um, you typically won't think there's noise there. If I'd gone to another doctor, the doctor would have said, go home, you don't need any tests. Or in business, if you are, let's say, involved in hiring decisions, uh, we all might in some sense know that bias in hiring is a serious problem. Noise also, where you might have one person interviewing a candidate and saying, this person's great and another interviewing the candidate and saying this person's terrible. And if the 
person's future depends on which interviewer she happens to draw, then that person is confronting a kind of Kafkaesque uh, nightmare where the future depends on a lottery. And in the criminal justice system, it's exactly the same in many nations, worse in some than others, where the most important moment after you've convicted is the assignment of the sentencing decision to a particular person or set of people. Who's the person or who's the set of people who get to decide? And that could result in you know, a very severe sentence because you're unlucky or a very lenient sentence because you drew a good card out of the deck. Cass, how can organization understand the level of noise impacting their decision? Okay, this is the good news, that you can conduct a noise audit. And a noise audit can be quite inexpensive to conduct, where you can take a decision, let's say, whom to hire, whom to promote, Uh, what insurance premium to set, how to respond to a customer complaint, or if you're a government, whether to award benefits of a certain kind or a license or a permit or a visa. And you can take a bunch of people, let's say 30, and give them a scaled down version of, let's say, a realistic scenario and ask them to come up with a number or a yes or no answer. And then you can see how much variance there is. We've done this, we've conducted noise audits, and we've studied data that allows us to conduct noise audits. And the level of noise is sometimes shocking, and it's typically much higher than predicted. And once a business conducts a noise audit, as, as stated, it's relatively straightforward, then you can see that you may be treating people unequally, which isn't something to be very proud of, and you may be uh, losing a lot of money as a business because half of your people are biased in one direction and half are biased in another direction. The, the average is fine, but the errors don't cancel each other out. They add up. Mm -hmm. So it means from a behavioral science perspective, we need to do sludge audit and we need to do noise audit. Yes, so these are two different kinds of audits. Uh, sludge is administrative burdens and paperwork requirements that are often excessive. And for businesses, they can be a killer. So if you're a business that is imposing on customers various administrative burdens and costs, it may be that they won't buy your product or maybe that they'll be very frustrated. And many businesses have done very well by cutting sludge or by conducting some kind of informal sludge audit. We're seeing increasingly formal sludge audits that come up with numbers. And this is happening in governments as well as in private institutions. A noise audit uses the word audit also, but it's a different kind where you're not testing excessive administrative burdens. You're testing for variability across people who are supposed to be the same. And you're seeing what kind of unfairness or what kind of economic loss you are suffering by virtue of the level of noise. Um, Cass, in the book, you introduce the concept of decision hygiene. Could you explain what this means and share some example? Yes, I like the way you pronounced it better than the way I'm about to pronounce it. The term, uh, the term as I pronounce it, which is less elegant, is decision hygiene. And here's the basic idea. Um, if you have a disease, let's call it strep throat, 
the doctors know what to do basically with strep throat. They may be a little noisy, but they know what to do. Uh, if you have a bias, let's call it, call it unrealistic optimism, or let's call it present bias, we basically know what to do. There's a particular medicine for those things. It may or may not work, but we know what to do. If there is noise, let's say a company is treating customers in a very noisy way, whereas some people who have a complaint about a product get a new product. Some are told to go home. Life sometimes has bad things in it. Some are told, we'll fix the product for you. That's noisy. Okay, decision hygiene says, stop that from happening by doing the equivalent of washing your hands. And what's the beauty of hygiene is, we've learned this particularly in the last year, is that it protects us from an assortment of germs if it's working well. And we don't have to know what they are to know it protects us. It's like it protects us against problems that we may not be able to identify in advance. That's one reason cleanliness is a good thing and there are social norms in favor of cleanliness. Okay, decision hygiene is the same. Often if you find noise, let's say in a government or noise in your own personal life or noise in a firm, you don't know exactly why, but you can do hygiene. I'll give a couple examples of hygiene. One is putting some guidelines in place. So if you have with respect to, let's say, employee evaluation, noisy processes, put some guidelines and the, the guidelines might they probably will greatly reduce the level of noise. When infants are born, there's a score, it's called in some countries the APGAR score, which just takes five factors and rates the infant on a scale of one to four or zero to four with respect to the five factors. And that really cuts noise out. That's, um, that's hygiene for organizations to have guidelines. A second thing you can do is to have um, more than one judgment ask for several independent judgments and take the majority or the average. That is spectacularly successful. And we've seen it work in medicine where second opinions are sometimes requested and in some hospitals they are required as a way of reducing noise. And also in forecasting, it's typical now to combine and aggregate forecasts rather than take one. That's an excellent decision hygiene approach. The third is a little more subtle, but it's in a way the most fun, I think, and the, and the most uh, doable like tomorrow. Instead of saying, should I go forward with a plan? The plan might be, let's say, to open a new office or to close an office or to branch out into a new uh, uh, business in some sense or to kill Osama bin Laden, let's say. Those are different questions. Instead of saying, should I? Ask subsidiary questions that bear on the question whether you should. So you might ask for the Osama bin Laden question. I was in the White House at the time, though I wasn't involved in the decision. I'm told this is exactly what President Obama did. He didn't ask, should I kill, try to kill Osama bin Laden? He asked, what's the likelihood that he's there? If he's not there now or is there now, What's the likelihood I can find him for sure later? If he is there now, what's the likelihood that I can successfully get him? If he isn't there now and I engage in a mission that turns out to be embarrassing, how bad is that? 
if he is there now and I end up getting him, what are the international repercussions, good and bad? Those are five questions. And if you structure the decision in terms of five questions, then you'll be less noisy. And we can think about this in personal life. If we think, should I buy a house? Should I take a new job? Should I move to a new city? You might just say yes or no. But if you divide that into subparts, you will have less bias. You'll also be less noisy in the sense of less likely to make the decision depending on your mood at the time, whether it's sunny out or rainy, or whether your favorite sports team won the previous day. You will be much steadier in your judgment once you disaggregate. So some, some of the idea of taking that big question and breaking it down into smaller, more digestible components, which, which may be less susceptible to, to noise and to the variation in judgment. Yes, and that that point is actually um, less obvious and small, I think, than it sounds. So we often feel that we should go with our gut, especially with something big or seeming unique. Uh, but that is a recipe for different kinds of noise. So your gut might be affected by the fact that something really good happened in your personal life the previous week or not, and that would make you noisy. We call it occasion noise. So doctors are more likely, this is a very recent paper that came out around the same time as our book, so it's not in our book. The doctors in the morning are more likely to prescribe statins for high cholesterol than in the afternoon, that's noise. And it's apparently because they're tired in the afternoon and they think, let's not bother, let's just go on to the next patient. And your inter inside yourself noise with respect to your profession or your personal life um, can be reduced if you think, what are the pieces of the problem and how do I answer or resolve each piece? That way you'll be more disciplined and your intuition will be delayed. It won't be eliminated, but it will be delayed. And one of our um, uh, new, at least for us, thoughts in the, in the book is to, not to get rid of intuition. Sometimes you're going to do that if you use an algorithm or uh, a calculator. Uh, but often we can't get rid of intuition, but, but don't let it lead the show. Let it be like a character in a movie who enters late. Mm -hmm. So more of delaying intuition as opposed to, to letting it lead your, your decisions. Yes. Or eliminating. So if, you're, if you're a company thinking, should I do something that I've never done before? You might be really scared or really excited. Uh, hold off a bit about your fear or excitement. Got it. Got it. Now, I, you just mentioned algorithms, and I believe that's also mentioned in the book. And I was curious to dive a little deeper into what you see as the potential value, but also perhaps the potential limitations of, of algorithms and perhaps AI as well, as it links to the issue of noise and, and increasing consistency of judgment. Okay, uh, if we may, let's sneak up on algorithms. Let's approach them stealthily. Um, to get at the promise of algorithms, we need to know what might they be a response to. Okay, point one, um, mood can produce noise with or in organizations. So if people are really excited about something external to the organization, 
they might do something on a Monday that they would not do on a Friday. That we call occasion noise, and it suggests that if you induce sadness or joy in people, you can make them make a different judgment from what they would otherwise make. Um, second, some people are severe and some people are lenient, and this take this as noise in, in systems where severity and leniency could involve any number of things. It could involve criminal punishment. It could involve evaluation of job applicants. It should could involve judgment about how to respond to an illness. It could respond how to respond to uh, a downturn. And if some people are severe and some people are lenient, then you're going to have have noise within the organization and noise at the system level. So in response to employee wrongdoing, let's say severity will lead to difference from leniency. And there's our lottery again. And there's a problem. There's a third kind of noise. And I promise we're going to get to algorithms, which we call pattern noise, which is that the most interesting kind. So it turns out, and the largest, it, it turns out that we each have judgment personalities. So a judge might say, if I have someone who's a shoplifter, it's probably a kid, people shoplift, it's not that bad. But if I have someone who did fraud, that's really, really bad, severe punishment. But another judge might think, you know, shoplifting's terrible. It's a scourge. It's theft. It's making businesses extremely vulnerable. Fraud, that's kind of a business offense. It's not good. But, you know, they've been convicted. I'm not going to put them in jail or not for long. And this difference produces different patterns. And what's true in criminal punishment is also true in business. People have different patterns. That's the biggest contributors. Algorithms don't have moods. They don't have different levels of severity, or at least a single algorithm isn't. It's going to have the same level of severity every time, and it's not going to have different patterns. It has the same pattern. So suppose you have an algorithm that decides whether someone has a disease or an algorithm that decides whether someone should be promoted or an algorithm that decides whether someone should be put in prison. It's going to avoid all of those forms of noise. Now, there may be problems with the algorithm, and our book is not called In Praise of Algorithms. Um, it's, it's about noise and decision hygiene. But one great thing about algorithms is they won't be noisy in any of these three ways. They are noise-free. They're really quiet. Um, do you think, depending of each type of uh, nudge, of uh, noise, sorry, um, the way to fight against their bad effect could be different. If it is kind of situational nudge, pattern nudge, occasional nudge, not nudge, noise. Um, You've just asked a, a great question. And I should say that um, thinking fast and slow by Kahneman was uh, a product of decades of work. And you could see a lot of it as a retrospective, retrospective account of decades. Nudge had uh, what we hope was a new idea, but the underlying behavioral science was work that we built on and that Thaler had done much of uh, over the preceding 25 years or so. Noise is, um, 
a very different animal in the sense that in some ways it's a premature book. It's a uh, product of, uh, uh, of a concern and a topic that we think is immensely important and underexplored, which is to say in some ways the book is earlier than we would have liked. It could have easily been a 20-year project. Uh, Danny sometimes jokes that he wishes it were a 20-year project, but he's 87 and he's not sure he's got the time. So on, on your great question, uh, here are a few early thoughts. Occasion noise, that is the vulnerability to uh, judgment of the mood people are in, is something that can be addressed, at least to some extent, through decision hygiene. If someone's really happy, let's say because the sports team won or because it's a beautiful day, um, you can ask for a structured decision rather than a decision that is, what do you think? What do you think should happen? Instead, you ask five subsidiary questions. And while that won't eliminate noise necessarily, it should reduce it. If there is noise at the system level where uh, uh, one set of people, let's say, are severe and one set are lenient, um, to have guidelines is a pretty good response and it's likely to reduce the disparity because the guidelines kick in. If you have pattern noise where the uh, problem is people have different patterns of judgment, and this I think is less intuitive, but you can see it everywhere once you get the category in your head. Uh, a good response to pattern noise is to have um, independent judgments by more than one person. You aggregate the judgments. And then if there's one person who really hates shoplifters and one person who can't stand business fraud, or one person who thinks if someone went to a great university, they should be hired, and another person thinks if someone has five years of work experience, they should be hired, and these produce different patterns, aggregate judgments from five people, then the noise will go away. And the beauty of decision hygiene is that it helps counteract bias as well as noise. So it's uh, it was sometimes described as a twofer. You know, building on your point from a moment ago, Cass, uh, where you, you've mentioned, acknowledged that this is really early days in understanding noise, are there specific areas that you envision for further research, whether it's by yourself or others? Um, if you had to put together a priority list of where you'd love to see people diving deeper, I was curious to hear that. Thank you for that. Well, the general categories are three, government, business, and individual life. Those are the general categories. Um, I would want to prioritize them in terms of importance to human beings on the ground. So for government, who gets benefits that could turn their lives around? whether it's economic benefits, educational benefits, licenses or permits, um, where are benefit grants noisy? That would be one area. And I bet you could find some countries which, uh, or in some areas of government decision, where the decisions are intolerably noisy. There was a study from a number of years ago that the benefit of asylum 
which is you know really important to people it, it's a lottery it's it's really like trying to draw something out of a hat and the something is a sympathetic decision maker and that's that's unfair and it is productive of error so uh, that's first for government second is punish punishment so whether it's a fine or a jail sentence or something else uh, this should not be very noisy some noise is inevitable where there's judgment but we need to have less noise there and some of the noise is connected with injustice along lines of economic status and wealth and gen and and uh race and gender and those are biases but the biases on the part of some but not all can produce noise across the system so there's that in business uh we're going to see i'm very confident much research and improvement in the next decade with respect to noise so we found in our early um uh, engagement with business that sometimes people in business will say uh i don't know how to handle that please stop talking to me <laughs> and others that say oh my gosh this is a serious problem and I think I have some ideas better than your ideas. They'll tell us about what to do about it. And the latter category, they're going to prosper because they're going to give customers a better experience. They're going to make better decisions. They're going to hire better people. Uh, Google has worked very hard not to be so noisy with respect to hiring, and they've they've done a great job. And I think in business, we're going to see a great deal. In individual life, um, I think of the three of us, the co-authors, I'm the most interested in that. So I'm thinking with respect to individual choices, how can all of us uh, reduce the noise in our, our judgment? And uh, that one, I think, I, I think that's a sleeper area where we're going to see a lot of good research from behavioral scientists. Okay. If, if we could circle back to the business side just for another moment, because we, we work with a lot of organizations, so I think it's naturally uh, of interest to us. Um, I know we've touched on a lot of different concepts today from noise audit to decision hygiene, and you spoke, of, you know, we touched uh, briefly about algorithms. You also spoke about some other uh, ways to limit noise. If you put yourself in the position of a, of a leader or business manager, where do you think they should start? Um, you know, are there two or three things you'd suggest to, to even start getting their hands around or their, their heads around this? Hiring, promotion, and uh, large-scale choices about the company's direction. Those would be the three I'd start with, uh, emphasizing that different companies have different challenges. So what comes out would be uh, dependent on that. But those would be the three to start. So if, if companies are making major decisions about whether to scale back operations or increase operations, those are highly likely to be noisy. Uh, and I'll put a, a fourth in uh, prompted by that category, which is meetings. Uh, if you elicit lots of independent judgments before the meeting really gets focused on narrowing options, you'll reduce noise in the following sense. Uh, you can think of a meeting as generating an outcome that could be very different from the one it generates, depending on who speaks first, who speaks most confidently, and who starts driving the room in a certain direction. And we've all seen this. 
And so meetings are noisy in the sense that identically situated companies can end up with different conclusions in meetings depending on really small variations. And that, that's bad. So we want independent judgment solicited early, allowing everyone to have their say, be quiet, boss, the person who's in charge should be quiet. President Obama, by the way, was a master of not giving a clear signal of what he wanted to do because he wanted to get as much information as he could. That reduced the noise. And the idea of uh, noiseless meetings in the sense of random factors of who speaks first, not generating a particular result, is part of the ingredient of uh, reducing noise in large-scale decisions. Cass, uh, you, you mentioned that noise uh, is the beginning of something. We are maybe thinking fast and slow. Uh, what's the result of decades of uh, research? I am very interested to know if you anticipate further research into noise and more specifically are there research questions that are very important to explore further yes so um when we started the book we had a concept and we had some data some data from insurance companies which we had ourselves generated which found extraordinarily high levels of noise We didn't have anything else, and we were very concerned that it would be a short book, too short. Uh, we found that investigating multiple areas, fingerprinting, that's a very unlikely thing to investigate. You wouldn't expect to find noise there, but there is. Hiring, promoting, um, medicine, law, These are some of our principal areas. And without having the rubric of noise, you could use the tools we developed to ascertain the level of noise from such data as is out there. And so we have a glimpse of a noisy world. But to know in France, for example, what level of noise there is with respect to X and Y and Z, that would be a fantastic step forward to know in a medium-sized company or a large company how much noise there is in an area that's important to the company. Customer complaints. I'd love to know what level of noise is there with respect to customer complaints or dealing with customer concerns. So any area in which judgment is exercised where the well-being of the company depends on a degree of accuracy, Noise is likely to be a serious problem. How much of a problem? We know that there's a lot of noise in domains where we didn't expect it. I personally didn't expect it. Uh, the fact that there's a lot of noise in psychiatry isn't shocking. I think we know that in the diagnosis of depression or anxiety, there's likely to be noise. But the sheer level of noise and the ineffectiveness of guidelines, this is a bit of a puzzle, in, in eliminating noise, that, that's, that's baffling. So what, what's going on there in psychiatry such that the decision hygiene technique that we recommend seems not to work? We don't know the answer to that question. Uh, one thing that I'm keenly interested in myself is when is um, a, a decision hygiene strategy a more beneficial than costly? 
and what are the benefits of each of the decision hygiene strategies we refer to. So we have a bunch of them. We have about five or six. We don't have the goods on the magnitude of the benefits they provide in different contexts. So this, this part of the book is speculative. We know as a statistical matter, if you take five judgments and average them, that will be produce less noise than if you take one judgment and make it authoritative. We know that. But what's the magnitude of the reduction? And is it worth it? Because to get five people to make the same decision, that's costly. A kind of trivial example is in grading. Uh, I grade papers, I'm sure. I hope my students aren't listening, that my grading is noisy. The noise would be less if I asked a colleague to grade them too and we average them, but that wouldn't be a lot of fun. Even though we like reading our student papers, for us to read twice as many wouldn't be a lot of fun. When is it worth it? And is there a star performer among our decision hygiene strategies? We don't know. There's some really interesting issues there. Um, I mean, the one one that resonated for me was was around the whole issue of guidelines um, and the idea of our guidelines not being issued enough or are they being issued and ignored? And are there systematic ways to make guidelines more effective um, and so forth? And I'm sure that might vary a lot by context, um, but there could be some generalizable learnings, I would think. Completely. And one great case study in this where for legitimate reasons, the data is, let's say, imperfectly public, it's getting a lot of attention, is Facebook's decisions about its own community standards. So you could imagine there would be charm in community standards that are vague and agreeable. And everyone said that's a good community standard, hooray for that. But then the decision makers on the ground would be very extremely noisy. If you say bullying and hate speech aren't allowed on Facebook, then there's going to be a lot of noise, which will produce serious problems and unfairness and mistakes. You could have, on the other hand, something that says certain words is qualifies as hate speech, uh, or you could have an algorithm to decide what's bullying. But it might be it would be over-inclusive and under-inclusive. So, so there could be words, you can think of them probably in French or English, where the use would be hateful or not, depending on the context. And can an algorithm figure that out? Maybe not. Yeah, is there a, a favorite chapter or section or idea from the book that maybe we haven't discussed so far? Well, the chapter that I enjoy most uh, these days is one that I didn't write. I did a little editing, and it's a chapter on objective ignorance. And the basic idea is so much of the book is uh, positive about our ability to improve our judgments by reducing bias and noise. And one of the locations that we focus on is predictions. So will a product sell? Will an employee do well? Will a policy work out? Uh, will a patient get better? And a lot of this involves uh, noise reduction. A lot of it involves bias reduction. So our, our book is a plea for more accuracy, better decisions. But there's something about the world that stands in the way of the most ambitious version of our, uh, let's call it, reform program. And that is the intractable uncertainty of how things are going to turn out. We call it objective ignorance. 
so let's suppose you know someone. My son is 12 years old. Uh, he's in the next room. You may have heard him a little bit. And let's say you get an algorithm that's really good at predicting life course. It's, it's amazing. It's the best. Uh, and let's suppose you ask, uh, where is my son going to be and what's he going to be doing at the age of 30? I say that it's in the nature of this beast that the algorithm is going to be extremely fallible and highly unreliable. Any number of things could happen that the algorithm is not going to be able to get uh, access to. He might fall in love with someone very surprising at age 18. He might encounter a teacher who gets him keenly interested in some topic in which he'd previously shown no interest. And that might be because he goes to a school that has someone who loves that topic. He might find in college uh, a friend who gets him interested in a sport that maybe he's good at it, maybe he's great at it, maybe he's neither, but maybe he wants to be a coach. The, the world is just full of things that we can't anticipate. And if we look at our own lives, uh, I think any of us could identify five forms of serendipity. That actually would be a fun exercise that ended up us bringing us to where we are in life now. It might involve our job. It might involve our personal life. And uh, no algorithm could anticipate that. No noiseless and biased free set of judges could anticipate that. And that suggests that when we think in business, let's say, that we really screwed up because something went wrong, that's actually not the right thought. It's a little too hard on oneself. It's that the world is objectively unpredictable. We can reduce the foolishness in our predictions and increase the uh, excellence of our predictions, but we can't make the world a um, uh, something that we can, uh, whose unfolding we can assess in advance. Well, a somewhat sobering way to finish things up, or at least a balancing way uh, to, as you said, to kind of counter some of the optimism um, or a balance against it. Um, I think we are towards the end of our time. So, but we didn't want to let you leave without asking you briefly about what's coming next, because we know there is always something coming next. And we heard rumors of a book for September. So can you speak briefly to so whatever you're able to share now about that? Yes, thank you for that. So before I joined the government, I finished uh, a book called Sludge. And the basic idea is that administrative burdens, paperwork, waiting time, uh, websites you can't figure out, uh, travel times, um, horror, Stephen King novel, administrative burdens are uh, with us. And that's uh, a terrible thing. Uh, sometimes it's terrible just because time is scarce and we need more of it. Sometimes it's terrible because sludge is like a wall or like a form of goo that separates us from something that can make our lives much better. So I'm hopeful that we will be seeing a war on sludge in governments and in the private sector. And the benefits for people who are elderly, poor, uh, undereducated, struggling in one or another way. Maybe they're sick, maybe they're suffering from uh, chronic pain, maybe they're suffering from depression or anxiety. The benefits will be incalculably high. So uh, 
the war on sludge is uh, uh, that's the good war. Eric, did you want to uh, to either ask a, another question or, or wrap things up? No, I think it was a insightful conversation. Uh, uh, I think there are a lot uh, to digest for uh, our listener and for ourselves. A new uh, concept and maybe the combination between bias and also the interaction between biases and noises opens a wide uh, perspective for a young researcher and not only young researcher. So uh, thanks a lot, Cass, for this uh, amazing conversation. Same, Cass. And, and just perhaps one last thing would just be where people can find the book. I know it's being launched, but anywhere you'd like to point them uh, to find out about noise or perhaps any of the other things we discussed. Well, uh, if you're looking for noise, there are online booksellers. I've heard there's a new one called Amazon. It seems to be doing pretty well, and it's available in many languages. We, we like independent bookstores, so if you can, I would favor at least consideration of an independent bookstore. Well, thank you so much again. I uh, really enjoyed the conversation, and, um, and hope we can do it again at some point, some not too long. Love that. Thank you. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.